Welcome to Humans of Fintech, the podcast where I share the inspiring stories of diverse leaders bringing equity to financial systems through fintech. I'm Nicole Casperson. Nina, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Humans of Fintech. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm so excited. In the flesh. Yes. In New York City. In New York City. In Brooklyn, Ah, specifically. In Brooklyn. I know. Through the traffic and all. Oh my gosh. How's it feel? You literally flew in last night. I literally flew in last night. It feels weird being back in New York. It's been a while. I love New York. Yeah. What a great city. I mean. But it's chaotic. It is. Chaotic good though. I would give that to India as well. Oh, yeah. So yeah. People ask me all the time, like, how is India? And really my initial reaction is like, India is all-encompassing. It yes. is all of the things. I it mean, consumes you. Yes. What a, it's like both overwhelming and beautiful and magical all at the same time. Yeah. And it's like, and I feel that way about New York as well, though mm. India is a much larger. Yes. Slightly yeah. bigger. <laughs> just a little bigger. Just a little bit. Like just a, just a few more people. Yeah, just a few more million, <laughs> yeah. whatever people. Hundreds uh, of millions. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, exactly. I loved it out there. And your father is from yes. India. Yes. So and yeah, uh, tell us about your parents. My father is from the northeast of India, a state called Orissa. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, is one of the poorest states in India, mm. which I think makes my father's story even more impressive to me personally. He grew up in a tiny rural village, and I think his story is very much the story, the immigrant story, the, the American immigrant mm-hmm. story. And he really studied hard. He was one of five children, and... Education was everything in his family and both sides of my family, actually. And my grandfather was a bus conductor. My grandmother took care of everyone. But I think from fairly humble beginnings, he studied hard, got into some great schools. Um, The entire family kind of pitched in for him to get that plane ticket Mm -hmm. to come to the U.S. where he did his master's degree. So that's my dad's side. Wow. My mother is from Taiwan, mm-hmm. and I always have to, especially in the U.S., I always have to clarify that Taiwan, like when I say I'm Taiwanese, that does not mean I'm Thai. <laughs> Just a little clarification there. <laughs> if you're confused. If you're confused, Taiwan and Thailand are different places. <laughs> Gosh, but, I hope my listeners know. Anyway, yes, Taiwan is a case. tiny, tiny, very important island um, off the coast of China. Largest manufacturer of semiconductors and very relevant right now geopolitically. But my mother is from Taipei and she immigrated similarly a lot around the same time, actually, as my dad. For similar reasons, mm. she was pursuing a master's degree in computer science. And they both somehow, they didn't know each other. They both ended up in Texas of all places. Wow. Random. It was very coming to America. And my mother was in Houston. My dad was in Arlington. Um, they had a bunch of friends. And I guess at that time, it was like the late 80s where they said, hey, there's this place that they're, it wasn't even called Silicon Valley at the time. It was, Mm. there's this place in California, they're hiring engineers, we should all go. And so basically all those people who graduated around the same time got in cars and just drove to California. And that is now the Silicon Valley today. Wow. So they are OG.com boom engineers. I grew up in the Silicon Valley people always kind of do a double take and they're like, you're from the Silicon Valley? Like, what is Are that? Are people from there? People live there? I'm like, yeah. yes, all those people <laughs> that build your apps <laughs> and make the internet work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're born and raised there yes, and then exactly. they never leave. No, and that, you no but truly, they don't. Oh, well, yeah. They do not leave. Like, 
Oh man, it is very interesting being back. Uh, I was back for three weeks and everyone is, you know, getting married, having kids, lovely. And everyone just kind of like hangs out with the same people, which is great. I obviously left the country. I've been living abroad for over 10 years now. So it is just such a different lifestyle to me. But there are certain cliche things about Silicon Valley kids where you kind of boomerang back after uni and go work at Meta or mm-hmm, Google, mm-hmm. which is great. Yeah. They have great stock options, I'm sure. <laughs> great benefits, maybe. Great perhaps. benefits, all, all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah, birthdays in Napa, you really yeah, to Hawaii. All good. Casual, <laughs> casual lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. But then how interesting is it for you to really have then your own immigrant experience? Absolutely. When you moved to, did you move to London? So I have lived in three different European countries. I actually first moved wow. to Paris. I moved to Paris to study. Mm. So I was studying at um, a school there called Sciences Po. I've since been told, I didn't realize at the time that is kind of the equivalent of Harvard. And so great news for me because I didn't get into Harvard here. Uh, so I went and studied Someone to there. Paris. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, Ma, are you proud of me? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, still not there. It hurts. Uh, Asian parents, you know, it'd be like that it sometimes. Are you, still, are you proud uh, of me yet? Cut deep. I know. But, oops, sorry. I, I first moved to Paris and that was a huge culture shock. I loved it though, being in Europe. And that's what ultimately made me decide to pursue a life in Europe. And so I then moved to the UK, briefly lived in Austria as well. So I've kind of like hopped around and now London is home. So the immigrant experience has been very interesting. Also given that it comes from a place of privilege. So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people will refer to me as an expat. I don't love that term expat because I think there is this purposeful delineation of you're an expat if you are wealthy or often if you are white Mm. living in a place that is non-white or Mm. is, you know, an emerging market or something like that. Mm. Don't love the term, but we're all immigrants at the end of the day, whether you're an expat or you're a refugee, right? And Mm -hmm. so it definitely comes with privilege and passport privilege to come from the Mm -hmm. U.S., But there are definitely some challenges that are difficult to overcome when you move countries. And that remains true regardless of your socioeconomic background. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though you came from the U.S., I mean, your parents are immigrants. You're brown. I am brown. It's a different. Yeah. (laughs) Me? Brown. Me? Have you seen seen me? Have you seen seen this beauty? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's uh, but that's a whole other thing. That's like a whole different experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you're going from. I don't know what Silicon Valley is like in terms of predominantly white, but I've got a feeling mm. um, it maybe is. But um, although probably a large Asian population as well. Lots of Asians. Yeah. And it's been really interesting to watch over the 30 years of my life yeah. where it's like we have some really banging like Chinese, Taiwanese, Korean, Japanese food, Indian food now. But it was it wasn't always that way. And even now, in hindsight, I think about some experiences that my dad would tell me about or hearing, overhearing them growing up and thinking, oh, it's weird that this is happening to my dad. And now as an adult, be like, oh, that was racism. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> understood. Got it. Understood. Or I, even, yeah. you know, like my mother was a QA engineer for many, many decades and constantly being passed over for promotions and that sort of thing because being East Asian, it was like, oh, you're an East Asian woman, so you're mm-hmm. docile and quiet. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, yeah. You can't be in a managerial position. Oh, my gosh. Right? 
So it is interesting how far we've come, but also how far we still have to go. Yeah, no, it it is so apparent. I mean, it makes me think of, it's funny, my, my mom's ex- experience is that, you know, she came to America and found her like, you know, knight in shining armor, if you will, in my very, very white father. Um, <laughs> Jeff, we love Jeff. And so... But, you know, it's funny because there's been times when, like, me and Anton, we've sat down with her and she's like, I've never experienced racism. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And um, tell me more about t- that. Tell me about it. She's like, but, you know, I just so then she uh, then she proceeds to tell us the story of how when we were growing up as kids and she would take us to school. And me and my, you know, my mom's like a darker skinned Filipino woman and yeah. she and her kids are not. And so she just looks very different than us. And so they she was like, ah, oh, you know, these women would think I was the. The, the, nanny. the nanny, you know, the they never thought that these were my kids. And ever since then, she's like, so you know what I do now? I make sure, and she's been doing it her whole life. She like wears big jewelry and she's always dressed up and she always has her makeup done and she always, she's very glamorous. That I love that about my mom, so... but it was a response. And I was like, so mom, that's racism. Like you've experienced it. How interesting, because yeah. we're both mixed race, aren't we? And so mm-hmm. I also don't share the same surname as my mother, and so I, I very clearly remember instances of that where it's like, we're looking for Nina Mohanty's mom. And my mother would kind of pop them like, that's me, like this tiny little Asian woman. And they'd be like, no, 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 Nina Mohanty's mom. <laughs> this one, this brown girl's mom. And my mom would be like, that's me. It's and it was just, mom. yeah. And like, that's my biological mother. Like mm-hmm. I came at people to this day. There's certain facial features that we have in common. I think when they hear me speaking Mandarin with my mom, then they're like, oh, oh okay, we yeah, see what happened here. But it is definitely it's so interesting being mixed race as well. It like is. An added it is. It is. Yeah. Being biracial is like a whole special experience. I like wish we had our own club because, <laughs> yeah. And because you're it's like it's usually whenever someone asks me about my own story, I always have to describe it as like. Well, growing up biracial, especially when your other half is white, it's like this weird thing because you like have all this privilege, but also like yeah. you're not, but you're not allowed in these like specific circles because you're just not white enough. You never um, fit in. Yes, yeah, so you never. Anywhere. Yeah, and then you know, even like in you know, in an Asian group, they're like, eh, she do we want her here? Yes. Um, exactly. But anyway, so it is a it is a weird dynamic, but. We've leveraged it as our superpower. Mm-hmm. And now I want to kind of start talking about like money. So, and fintech. Yeah. Because Talk about money. I'm like, Power. Anyways, money. Who did teach you a lot about money? You know, and I think that you can inherently learn. I learned a lot about money through my parents, whether they realize it or not. Just from watching them. Move. I think we all do. Yeah. So I would say that my, well, they both took that on, the teaching about money. It's funny in hindsight, my dad has this habit where he would always, if we would go out for like a treat for ice cream or something, or even buying us or having a family dinner or at a restaurant or something, which was always a very special thing. Mm-hmm. My dad would always take a bite or two and he would always say, I've got to take my tax. And we would always laugh and be like, ha 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 tax, like dad tax. But it was actually probably the most formative thing yeah. because I am obsessed about tax all the time. Like, for someone who is not That's an accountant, <laughs> I am constantly thinking about what are the tax implications of like every action that I take mm. in life. So that was instilled in me very early on, which is like nothing is really for free. And we always have to kind of factor in that there's going to be a cut of it going somewhere. Mm. I think my mother did a lot of the more 
basic financial literacy stuff. A lot of the the savings habits, I imagine you are as well, of the generation where we had checkbooks and we were taught to balance our checkbooks. Oh, yeah. Yes. Days, kids don't know. Kids don't know. But, you know, piggy banks. <laughs> I had this like massive pink piggy bank that was like dressed as a ballerina because I was, I trained Aww. in ballet. You know, all the typical, I also had a Barney piggy bank, which was, that thing was heavy. It was filled up. <laughs> you know, it was, Save. The, the pocket change was in exchange for work. Mm-hmm. And I think my parents instilled that in me very early on. And my cousin from India is actually, he was in town the past few weeks. And we were talking, we drove past this restaurant where I was a waitress during high school. Mm-hmm. And he's like, wow, you started working really early. And my mom was like, oh yeah, Nina was babysitting when she was 12. And then, you know, she started working as a waitress mm-hmm. and I've been a barista and a bartender and all these things. And I think my parents are very stereotypically Asian in that they wanted me to focus on my studies. But in hindsight, they have actually given me credit for putting in work and like Mm -hmm. understanding labor and the value of a dollar. And that has stayed with me since. So I do not take for granted where, you know, sometimes I'll do speaking engagements now where I get paid thousands of Mm -hmm. dollars or pounds. But even though, you know, that has changed from being on minimum wage working in high school, every dollar still means a lot to me. Mm -hmm. I also think, though, importantly, and this is a very immigrant child thing I don't Mm -hmm. know if it resonates with you is for my family in particular we were always in the scarcity mindset always I I think we still are and it's funny I was trying to put together a TikTok for Bloom (laughs) about like five signs that you might be an immigrant child type thing and I know you're half Filipino and you actually have a name for it the Balakbayan boxes like sending boxes of stuff home Mm -hmm. we don't really have a name for it in India but my entire life we would hoard stuff yes And then either bring it to India for the cousins or for whoever. Or like my dad would have like 50 lipsticks. I'm like, who are these for? It's like, it's for your aunties (laughs) in India. You know. That's exactly right. So either it goes in the box that's coming with us to India or it just gets hoarded and it stays there. Mm -hmm. And I look at my parents' garage and it's like, whoa, nothing gets thrown out. Mm -hmm. Broken things. Yes. Being hoarders is just a... My parents have a broken Vitamix and they will not get rid of it because they're like, this was expensive. I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't work. Mm. I'm like, well, we could get it fixed. I'm like, okay, we'll do that then. Like either get rid of it or fix Mm -hmm. it, but it just sits there. And so I think that has affected my personal money Mm -hmm. mindset in that I had to overcome the scarcity mindset. And of course, you know, so much privilege in being able to do that and having therapy to Mm -hmm. talk through why is no amount of savings ever enough? Mm-hmm. For the longest time, I just chucked all of my money in a savings account and just kept growing this like pot. And it was finally to the point where it's like, okay, you have six months of like pay yeah. you could live off of. And it still wasn't enough. No. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even investing at that point. So I think that learning about money also affects your money mindset, the way mm-hmm. that you approach it, the way you feel about money. And money is so emotional inherently that that has followed me around as well. Yeah, no, I I mean, I love that. And it's so true. I mean, the scarcity mindset is something that I think I'm still, you know, I'm, I've been able to work through as an adult and I'm still working through, right? Mm-hmm. And then now I'm, it's like the, the roles are reversed where I'm teaching my parents, mm-hmm. right? About how to get out of that mindset. Because, yeah. you know, even my dad not being an Im- immigrant, he grew up a poor kid and he still just has that 
mm-hmm. as well. And I mean, him and my mom have been together for so long that their brains are like the same. So they like both very much have this and they have this very like almost like waiting to get screwed over mindset, which I think is tied into scarcity, which is very much scarcity mindset, right? Like you're yeah. just waiting for the thing to go away. You're just lucky to even have this thing or someone's going to screw me over or who is it going to be? Is it going to be the, the bank? Yeah, it's like that waiting for the shoe to drop all the time feeling. And I think that what it seems like you've created with Blue Money is the ability to combat scarcity mindset in immigrant communities and maybe also the things that come with it, the the inherent byproducts of scarcity mindset, like worrying about the future. And <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you say that because one of the things that I've been doing a lot of research around for Bloom specifically mm-hmm. is gold in oh. global South communities. I don't know if it's a big thing in the mm-hmm. Philippines. I imagine it probably is. I have no idea. Okay. I can ask my mom. It might, it probably in jewelry form. Well, and you mentioned that your, your mother. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, kind of had to flee during the revolution mm-hmm. and come here. And, you know, my nail tech is Vietnamese in London. And she kind of jokingly calls herself one of the boat people because she fled as a baby yeah. um, or like as a child. She's a refugee. And I have friends who are, you know, children of Somali refugees or just like immigrants. And a very common thread in Global South communities is this buying up of gold. Mm. Because gold is an excellent store of value. And if it is in jewelry form, it can be carried quite quickly. Mm -hmm. And Jane, my nail tech, specifically mentioned that when they fled Vietnam, her grandmother was sewing gold into their underwear. Yeah. Before they got on the boats. And I think about it. And, you know, today money is kind of like a bunch of bits, right? And it's like you check your bank account, Mm -hmm. whatever. I do a lot of work with refugees, though, and when you flee, it's like, okay, identity documents and then, like, the most amount of money you can carry, and usually that's going to be a piece of gold. Mm -hmm. And so there's also the psychological attachment to gold. And so for future products at Bloom, I've been really interested in the way that Paytm in India approached gold and investing in gold Mm -hmm. because we have in our psyche, like, okay, gold is always going to be there if you yeah. need to grab it and run. When the other shoe drops, mm-hmm. which is still like so ingrained in us, mm-hmm. we can grab the gold and run. So how can we now think about digitizing this behavior? Mm-hmm. How can we think about investing in commodities in a digital way for a community that actually for so long has needed the physical thing as well? And that is just one example of diaspora of immigrant experience where there are very specific opportunities for financial services mm-hmm. that the typical incumbent players are not even thinking about. Mm-hmm. Tell us about how you really like connect that dot for us and how, you know, all of these experiences that we've talked about for you led into Bloom, like the creation of Bloom Money. I think I used to try and tell a wider, like, let me talk to you about the TAM of Bloom story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't have to do that here if you don't. Yeah, want. no, I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> not going to, because I think what resonates more is Bloom is Deeply personal. Yeah. And then I realized that my personal experience is replicable across so many other people's lived experiences as well. Mm -hmm. So I grew up, you know, yes, very privileged in the Silicon Valley. My parents were engineers. But again, we had that scarcity mindset. We also sent money home. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I remember my dad would put me in the car seat and we'd like drive to this hole in the wall Western Union place and he'd give them cash and they'd send it on. 
And to this day, we still send money home to India. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, yeah. the method of sending it has changed, but we still do. And I think what really frustrated me about this is working in fintech, you know, my exes include MasterCard and Starling Bank and Bud and Klarna. Yeah. Wow. It was like, cool, you've, we're building some really interesting stuff. But everything that's being built for immigrants is like, let's send money away. Let's send it home. Mm -hmm. And that's great. Like, there's a reason, there's a cultural and familial duty to sending money home. Mm -hmm. But what about building wealth where we are? Mm -hmm. And my parents very much benefited from the fact that my aunt immigrated before my mom. Mm. And she was working at IBM with her husband. And so they were earning quite well and had enough to find a financial planner and advisor. And so my mom was getting secondhand advice Advice, through my aunt. Nice. So my aunt was like, you should set up a 529 fund for Nina. Or like, well, I didn't even exist. And I wasn't even an idea, right? It was like (laughs) for your children. My mom was like, what is that? And a 529 is a tax efficient vehicle for education, right? And it was very interesting to starkly see myself compared to other people that I know from immigrant backgrounds who their parents had no idea about, Mm. you know, a 529 or various investment vehicles. And now they either are saddled with student loan debt or weren't able to go to Mm -hmm. uni. Whereas I kind of had the privilege of not only doing my bachelor's, but also a master's degree Mm -hmm. and don't have any student loan debt off the back of that. So this is all to say that Bloom was very much, okay, this immigrant experience Mm -hmm. is very unique. Mm -hmm. There are certain behaviors that across every culture are going to be the same. So remittances is one. Mm -hmm. But then we kept finding this group savings mechanism, which I know from my parents. So in Taiwan and Chinese speaking places, we call it hui. But in India, we call it chit funds or kiddies. Mm -hmm. My understanding is in Tagalog, it's paliwagan, but -hmm. it's also called tanda in Mexico and hegbad in Somalia, all these different Mm -hmm. names for it. And it's very communal which is another thing that immigrants have in common when, you know, when VCs talk about community, like a community is not a Slack channel. A community is like, (laughs) say it louder for the people in the back. A community is not a Slack channel, damn it. A community is not a Slack channel. And I really think a community, you have a community when people are coming together on their own accord within that community. I think you definitely have that with your Mm -hmm. community. But, you know, the nature of immigrant communities is they do come together because they are, outsiders they're newcomers Mm -hmm. in a new place and so they seek familiarity so they form a community and so whether that is tied together by the mosque or the church or the market right there are common meeting points physical meeting points, yes but also common behaviors that tie people together and so bloom was born out of realizing that okay actually yes every culture is unique and beautiful in its own way and down to even tribal differences but we are still taking part in some very easily replicable behaviors that can be made into specific financial products Mm -hmm. and services that are better serving us. And I guarantee you Barclays and, I mean, I'm not picking on Barclays, but like Citibank or whoever, like these high street banks, Mm -hmm. frankly, don't care. They don't care. Well, they don't have any real incentive to care. They don't. And there's also this misconception that like, oh, immigrants are poor. And while that might be true initially, I very much believe in this concept of build your perfect customer. Mm. So just because your perfect customer is not a prime customer today mm-hmm. doesn't mean that they can't be in five years time. Yeah. And so with our first product, Bloom Circles, 
we've digitized an analog behavior, but it actually lends itself very nicely to underwriting mm -hmm. because people are putting aside a set amount of money every month or every mm -hmm. week or whatever. And so now it's like, oh, cool, we can unlock credit underwriting opportunities yeah. here. We can create that perfect customer by helping them build their credit score. Right. And now what does that mean for us in terms of can we go into lending products? Are there very specific things like immigration fees, mm -hmm. you know, or legal fees or whatever it might be? Um, small businesses. Mm -hmm. I think the stat is in the UK, at least, and probably more so in the US, immigrants are five times more likely to start a business than their native-born counterparts. Yeah. So what does that mean for us in terms of small business growth? Can we mm -hmm. build a product around that? It's really exciting. And like the possibilities are endless and I get so excited about it. And when I try to quantify, it's like, originally I was like, oh, maybe there's like a few hundred million. Then I was like, oh no, this is a billion. Oh, 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 bigger mm -hmm. than that. Yeah. You know? And so no, this is bigger than any audience the bank is after. Exactly. And so, you know, I really hope that they're paying attention because yeah. we are coming for their immigrant customers. Yeah. One thing I look for, um, people ask me all the time, what do I look for in a fintech company that I'm interested in, you know, talking or covering or whatever. And for me, it's really about, you know, who's trying to actually get in there and fix the root of a problem as opposed to putting a Band-Aid over a, a solution. And so you're getting into, I think, something that's amazing about immigrants is that communal element, which frankly, all of us are humans and we are communal by nature. Mm -hmm. Although, in especially here in the States, it's a very individualistic society, which mm -hmm. sucks. It's why road rage is such a thing. I yeah. witnessed it on the way here. Yes, because we're all selfish, <laughs> all right? If we could all just do things for each other, we would stop having so much accidents. Anyway, yes. I digress there. And so I, I like that, you know, I, I think a lot about how, you know, you really, honestly, you can have it all, but you can't do it all alone. Mm. You have to have a community. You have to have people that are going to be there to back you up. You have to have accountability. You have mm. to have all those things. And, and immigrants know this inherently by being just so t tightly knit with our families and, yeah. you know, for better or worse. And, but to provide that option in money, you know, in saving, in mm. and all of that. And that's what Bloom Circle is, right? It's yeah. like basically providing that community so that you all... Yeah. can back each other up yeah. and then expanding that into other areas. And I think I really love the niche focus of fintech, certain fintech companies. The key is what you're doing, right, is finding what are you going to do differently than a bank can provide? Because you can't just like tie up a banking product and like and call it specifically for a certain demographic and mm -hmm. then hope it's going to work out. And it's exactly the same. You have to create a whole different thing. Yeah. And so that's what I, I think I really struggled with that because there was a wave for a while of like affinity banks. Mm -hmm. Love that for us, you know, like content creator banks, mm -hmm. whatever. And I do believe that we are at a point of fintech maturation where we can serve distinct communities better. But for me, it really felt like, you know, to get really nerdy about it, everyone was just doing a different wraparound or different product design mm -hmm. on like a Marketa tech stack and being like, here's your like e-money account with a card yeah, and like that's it mm -hmm. and like maybe you have a few cashback things that are slightly more focused on the community that you're mm -hmm. within like if you're a gamer they would have you know discounts on gaming equipment right. or whatever but actually is that solving the core problem here and I think what's the huge opportunity is what are the behaviors that are different that make it such that this community is not being served well mm -hmm. and I think unfortunately, the nature of being an immigrant is you are new somewhere. So you are starting from scratch, which doesn't jive well with financial systems. Mm -hmm. And the needs that you have are outside those of what a native person is going to want. 
I say native person is in like native born, not mm -hmm. Native American. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's a huge opportunity. And I think it's a few folks have really done it well. And I, I hope that we are, you know, joining those ranks of, of trying at the very least to serve better. Yeah. I mean, and now it's and I know it's a hard time right now because we're we raisin. Right. Even though the, interestingly that the news about you yes. having raised came out like a month ago and now yes. it's and you're like, but I'm raising again. Yeah. So please, please. Um, yeah. That's, no, that's interesting. I mean, I know we're kind of closing out here, but curious and with my audience and listeners being a lot of other fintech founders in mm -hmm. your very shoes, yeah. um, you know, building different things and all for financial inclusion. I hope I say into the camera, you know what? Any advice you got for everyone out there? I know for your it's peers. <laughs> It is really, I never planned to be a founder. Mm -hmm. I was really happy. And again, like immigrant mentality it was like, get a corporate job, yep. work that corporate job, get your bonus, buy a house, go to Napa for your birthday, all that stuff. some kids. Yeah, you know, and that is still a wonderful thing to do. And I'm not knocking that at all. And that was the path that I was on. Mm -hmm. I was just so obsessed with the problem. Mm -hmm. And I still am. It is so tough. It's up and down. You know, your audience will understand that. But I'm still excited to wake up every morning and work on Bloom because I know it's so broken. Mm -hmm. And in the UK, I live in Lewisham. It's a very immigrant heavy area. I literally live in the middle of it. It's like I step out into my front doorstep and I call it my life stack. Like I've got an aunt, a Sri Lankan auntie that does my eyebrows i've got mm -hmm. like my turkish tailor and a turkish dry cleaner life, like life you know stick. they're all yeah. down one road and i see the problem every day so i think that's what motivates me to keep mm -hmm. going i think there's you just have to have such conviction and to your point about slapping a band-aid over a problem that is going to incrementally change something like mm -hmm. cool we saved you like 0.5 basis points on your fees for mm -hmm. investment like fine that's <laughs> great but is that what's going to get you through the really hard times? Yeah. And I will say this. We are early stage. And eventually, obviously, the metrics will bear, bear itself out. But for now, it is very much I'm realizing and it's a very humbling realization that everyone that has backed us to date has backed us because of our team, mm -hmm. because of me. And that's like... Mm -hmm. Is, wow, it's weird. I know it's, it's a, like oh my god it's like, me <laughs> like it's a lot of pressure it's yeah. very humbling yeah and a great honor to have people entrust that and see the passion that you have mm -hmm. for solving this problem that you are obsessed with so that's what's keeping me going at the moment yeah. keep your head up have a good playlist <laughs> right have a good way to release <laughs> yeah release the wiggle I mean I go and like I go boxing just release all the that's stress good out. so you know have that's your thing good. that you need yeah. to get you through yeah no it's good music Music. Working out. All of it. Yes. Maybe good food. Ugh. I know. That's what we're about to go do. Yes. Well, then my final question for you, Nina, is if we need to be the change that we wish to see, mm. what change do you wish to see in fintech and how do you embody it? If we want to be the change we wish to see, then the change we must see is, God, it's so... You're like, I have 500 things to say. Yeah, there's so many. <laughs> um it's going to sound really touchy-feely, but we need to have more people from diverse backgrounds working in fintech. Mm -hmm. I don't, frankly, give a shit about the next. Like, we're trying to build a platform for high net wealth individuals. Like, I don't care. Like, they are being they got, served. They got enough platforms. They've got it. They've got the money. It's fine. I think what's really interesting about our team at Bloom, we are small, mm -hmm. but 
71% of us come from either first or second generation mm -hmm. um, immigrant households. We have a team member who's brilliant, who was literally born in a refugee camp. Mm -hmm. And the insights that they are bringing to our product, yep. they're phenomenal. I mean, even little things, you know, when you're early stage and it's like, we're doing a bunch of open banking connections. And so just that by very nature, because our data scientists come from a very specific cultural background, when they go and ask their friends for, you know, can we just have you connect your open banking data or to their mums or their aunties, mm -hmm. it's already like right there. We don't have, we're not like kind of having to find synthetic data to mm -hmm. use. It's like, <laughs> this is the target demographic that we're trying to serve. And it's right just there. this person's aunt, right? So yep. having a more diverse background, you find the things that you want to call out, the things that are bothering you that aren't quite right. And it informs your product roadmap informs your commercial setup mm -hmm. it informs your morals and values as a business and so i believe it is making us stronger as a team and it will make our products better and stickier and create mm -hmm. that moat that vcs are so obsessed about and yeah i mean if you want to go and like build another thing for high net worth like fine i guess that's great but it'd be cool for you to have someone who doesn't come from that world perhaps mm -hmm. be on the team and be like how do we get everyone who's not high net worth yeah. in through that door, right? Yes. Like, you know, just thinking outside of the box a bit. So I'd love to see that. And I think that's why you and I both do mm -hmm. so much in our own space to get more women into fintech, mm -hmm. for example. But everyone, I want everyone. I want all everyone. the faces, yeah. everyone. Yeah, uh, no, well said. I uh, My most recent newsletter, I called it the hubris factor, which frankly, I have to give credit to Anton Briones, which I talk about, who I talk about a lot on this show. <laughs> he makes appearances, but he actually helped me kind of formulate this is the, you know, I think the biggest problem in fintech when I'm asked that question is like the ability to think that you can solve any problem without the people in the room who that problem affects directly. It sounds pretty fucking insane to like, bruh, not, bruh. honestly, I honestly, <laughs> it's like, laughable. I'm laughing at you. The, the, what are you doing? The banks were like, we're doing a financial inclusion program. We've set aside a bu budget of 10 million. I'm like, okay, great. Fantastic. Give it to me. I, I will go speak to I, the people <laughs> because they're just going to sit in Canary Wharf or, you know, in the yeah. financial district and be like, what do poor people need? What do like, poor people need? What do brown people need? What do brown people need? Let me, what do, let me tell are you. Are you kidding me? They're still trying to figure out what women need and that's oh. half the population. They don't even, they're like, what do women need? <laughs> please, please, just give and, me the money and I will take care <laughs> we'll of it. We'll do it. But that's exactly like, for me, the Band-Aid in like media and representation is like, but we have a diversity section, but we got a <laughs> women's issue. We do the women's issue and I'm like, no, 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 Yeah, yeah. But we got the, we did the women's thing and and the women's event and I'm just like, oh my God. Yeah. And so, yeah, for me, it is like, what about just literally just instead just centering diverse individuals and women as the leaders that they are with the experiences that they have to yeah. talk about the business just like anything else as front page center news, as opposed to, oh, well, Nicole wrote that story about uh, Sally Krawcheck. So she, the women's section, the women's section. And I'm like, but Sally Krawcheck just like did a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Maybe she should go on the front page news. Instead. She's actually and it's like, like a very skilled banker and operator. Yeah. Maybe instead it shouldn't anyway, but yeah. that's like my whole We're thing. just ranting at each other. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, okay, we'll close this out. We have to eat. Nina, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. Thank this you. This was Nicole such a pleasure. Me. So much fun. You'd be surprised. This is like the first time her and I have actually like sat properly and, sat down and talked to each I other. Know. So it's so exciting. Besties, but yes, though. we're gonna go eat food. Bye. Bye. Thank you for having me. Yes. 
thank you so much for tuning into this episode. To hear our next story from another diverse leader, be sure to tune in next week. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our show and give it a five-star rating as it helps our message reach more people who want to find belonging too.